Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Mike Wong here, ready to respond to the 11th episode of Star Trek Discovery's third season, titled Sukal. As always, we have a think segment, a feel segment, and a question segment on these short responses. And here is my think. In this episode, Sukal, we travel to the mysterious source of the burn, the so-called Verubin Nebula. Since we finally find out what's been causing the burn in this episode, or at least we think we find out, who knows what plot twists await us in the final two episodes of the season, I feel comfortable dishing out my almost certainly nullified hypothesis for you all to laugh at. So here goes. The nebula is called the Verubin Nebula. And throughout the season, the writers have been subtly naming things after recently deceased people. Some of my favorites include the 32nd century Starfleet ships, the USS Nog, the USS Yelchin, and the USS Le Guin. In case you don't know, the Nog was named after the late Aaron Eisenberg's character, Nog, on Deep Space Nine, and that ship turns out to be an Eisenberg-class ship. The Yelchin was named after Anton Yelchin, who played Pavel Chekhov in the Kelvin Timeline movies, and the Le Guin was named after the luminary science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin, who wrote, among many things, the novel The Left Hand of Darkness, which was the one and only novel I enjoyed reading in college English. Okay, back to Verubin. This nebula seems to be named after another person we lost in recent years, American astronomer Vera Rubin. Her work, studying the odd ways that galaxies rotate, provided evidence for dark matter, invisible sources of gravity that play a profound role in shaping our universe. Dark matter makes up 27% of the mass energy of the universe, compared to normal matter's meager 5%. Everything that you feel and see is normal matter. In fact, you're normal matter, too. And your senses can detect all of this stuff around you because normal matter interacts with the electromagnetic forces. When you tap your comm badge to make a call, what you feel is the electrostatic repulsion between the electrons in your fingers and the electrons in the badge. When you see Osira's ship decloak in front of you, that's because electromagnetic radiation, in the form of light, has scattered off of her vessel and into your eyes. But dark matter does not interact with electromagnetic forces, at least as far as we can tell. Instead, its presence can only be felt through the force of gravity. And gravity is a super weak force. I mean, think about it. When I walk into your room, you don't suddenly feel my gravitational attraction pulling you, and you can defeat the gravity of the entire Earth with a small magnet. So, it took observing gravity on the grandest scales, galaxies, collections of billions of stars, to figure out 
that dark matter existed, even though it's more than five times more prevalent than normal matter. And that's exactly what Vera Rubin did. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'd love to share a fun personal side note. When I was an undergrad, I did a summer internship at the Carnegie Institute for Science in Washington, D.C., which is where Dr. Rubin worked and did her pioneering research on dark matter. And that summer, I got to see Dr. Rubin give a seminar talk, and for such a legend, she was extraordinarily good-natured, just a grounded human being who spoke very highly of others and their work. So at the end of the talk, I felt this inexorable pull towards the podium, where she remained answering questions from curious folks. I was definitely starstruck, and it probably showed. When she finally cast her attention on little me, I simply held out my notebook and asked her to sign it. She didn't know what to make of me at first, but eventually she took my pen and my book and wrote, Thanks for coming, Vera Rubin. To this day, she remains the only scientist I've ever felt compelled to collect a signature from in this way, as if she were a Star Trek celebrity at a convention. But honestly, I think Dr. Rubin's signature means more to me than any actors I've ever met, simply because I can look back on that blue ballpoint scribble amongst the gradually yellowing pages of equations and tables and experiment notes from my very first scientific research project. And remember how, at the very beginning of my journey into scientific research, Vera Rubin was there, welcoming me into the fold. Okay, that's the science and a little bit of my personal scientific history. Now let's wrap in the Star Trek. So, the Verubin Nebula seems, for all the world, to be named after Vera Rubin. But it's not exactly the same way as the Nog, the Yelchin, or the Le Guin. You see, it's not exactly her name. It's a smooshed-up version of her name. And to me, this was the writer's way of telling us, pay attention to this one. It's plot important. It's not just a nod to you fans, a slight tip of the hat towards that fourth wall, but perhaps it's a completely in-universe thing. Perhaps Starfleet astronomers named this nebula the Vera Rubin Nebula once upon a time, but then the name of the nebula got contracted from Vera Rubin to Verubin, kind of in the way that Federation got contracted to Vidraish over the years. And, in my hypothesis, perhaps this nebula was named in Rubin's honor because it contains an abnormally high concentration of dark matter. Now, way back in Season 2, Ensign Tilly hypothesizes that dark matter could have applications related to interfacing with the spore drive and hence the mycelial network. This season, Tilly again surmises that a dark matter interface for the spore drive was possible. Paul Stamets, not 
Paul Stamets' Anthony Rapp, but Paul Stamets, the real mycologist, even gave a TED talk where he compared the network of mycelia on Earth to the morphology of dark matter distribution in the universe. Going way out, dark matter conforms to the same mycelial archetype. I believe matter begets life. Life becomes single cells. Single cells become strings. Strings become chains. Chains network. And this is the paradigm that we see throughout the universe. Most of you may not know that fungi were the first organisms to come to land. They came to land 1.3 billion years ago. And plants follow we know that the initial writers and producers of Star Trek Discovery were inspired by the real Paul Stamets' work and probably watched this very TED talk and therefore may have drawn up some connection between dark matter and the mycelial network that just hasn't been fully fleshed out in the series yet. So let's add everything up in my hypothesis so far. We have this nebula named after Vera Rubin, maybe because the nebula has an abnormal amount of dark matter in it. Now we know that dark matter could provide an interface to the mycelial network, and we know that the discovery is uniquely capable of traversing that network. So in my hypothesis, it's the USS Discovery that's waiting inside the Verubin Nebula. Not the Discovery that we've been watching all season long, but another version of the Discovery from one of the many other universes that the Mycelial Network connects to. In particular, I thought we would see the Discovery from the Short Treks episode Calypso. Alas, sadly for my hypothesis, we don't find that. Instead, in the episode Sukal, what we find in the Verubin Nebula is a planet, a crashed Kelpian ship, and a Kelpian man-child named Sukal whose panic attacks seem to cause dilithium destabilizations to emanate across space. I'll be honest, I'm still not quite sure what to make of this, and I'm reserving judgment until I see the resolution play out over the next few episodes. But what I can say from a scientific perspective is that the Verubin Nebula was far too dense. And look, I don't blame the writers. This is a common issue in sci-fi. Most of the time it has to do with asteroid belts, so the common asteroid fields problem is that Science fiction likes to make things exciting by overpacking asteroids into a small area of space to make for thrilling chase scenes or something of the like. When in reality, space is big. And mostly empty. So in this episode, the Verubin Nebula is so thick and soupy that only Book's small craft could dodge the turbulent clouds in the nebula, or something like that. But in reality, the gas in typical nebulae are many orders of magnitude thinner than the atmosphere that we breathe on Earth, which we know Federation ships have no trouble flying through. Scan for the life sign. Way too much substance density interference. Damn it, this storm is not supposed to be this bad. We've got a mass of hydrogen and dust collapsing. Hang on! 
The Verubin Nebula does make sense in other key areas, though. It checks out that a dilithium nursery would be found inside of a nebula, especially one produced by a recent supernova. Now, dilithium is a fictional element, and according to memory alpha, has an atomic weight of 87. You don't need to memorize this number, it won't be on any quiz that you ever have to take. Well, maybe except for the Science of Star Trek quiz that I write one day. But for right now, all you need to know is that dilithium-87 is more massive than iron-56, which is the heaviest element that stars can create through fusion in their cores. All elements heavier than iron, including the fictional dilithium, are produced in cataclysmic events, like the explosion of dying stars called supernovae. Such explosions scatter the remains of those stars throughout space to seed the generation of new stars and planets and, apparently, dilithium nurseries. Thus, it also makes sense that the Verubin Nebula would be a high-radiation environment that would endanger the health of an away team, because exploding stars are spectacles that are best viewed from afar. Alright, with those many thoughts about the Verubin Nebula behind us, let's turn to my feel. In a single word, this episode made me anxious. Like, way more anxious than any episode in Season 3 so far. You know, in no episode this season, prior to Sukal, did I really feel like any of the main characters were in mortal danger. That was actually an odd feeling for Star Trek Discovery, because in the first and second seasons, I honestly had no idea who was gonna die next, only that someone would. We lost Prime Giorgio in the pilot, Connor, Landry, Dr. Colbert, Admiral Cornwell, Arium. The first two seasons were just one death after another. But in season three, it's been relatively calm. These stories tend to derive their unpredictability from discovering how the sociopolitical landscape of the galaxy has changed in this new time period, rather than an unabating fear of who might perish on the next away mission. Well, that all changed with Sukal. Michael, I must ask the impossible. I need you to stay. Captain. If we leave Sukal alone, it is only a matter of time before the burn happens again. With your xenoanthropological skills. What? But it has to be you. I am the captain. He responded to you when you sang. You have a connection with him. Osira is here. My responsibility is to discover you and recruit. I will not allow my emotions to factor into my decisions. Saru, you already have. Whatever Tilly needs, I will be there for her. When Saru is talked into being the one to stay with Sukal in his frightful holographic playground, a sudden wave of fear washed over me, as if I had been transformed into a Kelpian myself, my ganglia descending, tasting the coming of death. Don't split up, I pleaded at the away team, but of course, they did. I really got the feeling in that moment that Saru might die. 
And, as if this weren't enough, at the very same moment, Osira was infiltrating Discovery and taking control of the ship. And at this, I felt a similar sense of nauseation to when the Jemadar took Deep Space Nine during the Dominion War. I don't know about you, but I'd rather see my hero ship crash onto a Y-class planet than let it fall into enemy hands. So, yeah, classic Star Trek Discovery anxiety is back in full force, and I just need Thursday to roll around so that we can find out what happens and put me out of my misery. And with that, let's just turn to my quick question for today. You know, it's hard to choose one because so many plot points in this episode were left hanging on a cliff. But I guess the thing that I want to know the most is whether the sphere data integrated into Discovery's computer in the personality that we think will become Zora is going to take an active role in defending the Discovery and her crew from Osira's forces. I think what happens next will show us just how sentient Zora is, how compassionate and perceptive she is as well. It's quite possible that Zora is not yet evolved enough to interfere, or maybe she is aware of what's going on but is simply looking out for her own skin and doesn't perceive or consider Osira's command to be any less helpful to her own survival. Either way, I think we're in store for a great next episode. And till then, I hope you take care of yourself, take care of those around you, and enjoy the holidays to the greatest and safest extent possible. I'll talk to you all again soon. See you out there.